Amen. Uh, as we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, some of you know it, you already know, oh, here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this ought to be interesting. Uh, I've titled this morning, A Horrible Sin and a Stern Remedy. A Horrible Sin and a Stern Remedy. Uh, as most of you know by now, a, a good theme for 1 Corinthians would be a carnal church or carnal Christianity within the church. Much of this book is correction uh, to a church that has gotten off the straight and narrow, uh, that church in a Grecian town called Corinth. Uh, in fact, last week as we finished chapter 4, Paul ends the chapter, and you can just look perhaps on the same page you're on, in chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul says, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? As he's correcting them and just seeing things in their, uh, in their life, lifestyle of a church, uh, he says, man, as much as I've got to say, are you going to be humble so that when I come to Corinth, we'll just have a good, gentle, just time of fellowship together? Or do I need to come and, with the spank spoon, you know, or the uh, disciplinarian rod on you? And the very next thing we get into is, is why else would they need to be disciplined? Why else would this church need to be corrected? Well, look at verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, not even named among the pagans, that a man has his father's wife. So why else would Paul need to come with a rod of correction to a church that claims to have it all down we saw last week? Well, because this church that claims to have it all down, this church that says, hey, we are full, we are rich, we have need of nothing. Paul, whatever it is that you've got going on where you're like suffering for the gospel, dude, you make us sick. And Paul addressed that last week. Well, what, what else would this church need to be corrected on? Well, that church that thinks they've got it all down is a church that has been allowing sexual immorality among its ranks. In fact, the word sexual immorality, it's the Greek word pornea. You can only imagine where we English-speaking people get the word pornography. You guys remember my big fat Greek wedding, and isn't it the dad who says, every word we've got comes from the Greek? You know, no, is he squirting Windex on himself? I've never seen that movie. I've heard from some of you. Yeah, we get the word pornography or porn from the Greek word pornea, which means sexual immorality. Seven times in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, there's an address towards fornication. This word fornication or sexual immorality, it's kind of a, what's called a junk drawer term. All right, uh, any of you that have been to my house for our home group, you know we've got that giant junk drawer next to the silverware drawer that anything and everything that fits in there gets thrown in there. And it's the same thing with sexual immorality or pornea, a junk drawer term that's used to describe all kinds of sexual immorality. You know, it's interesting, our wicked minds would think of all sorts of ways to get around, uh, you know, uh, certain sexual terms to see if that's okay. And we saw that with uh, President Clinton in the late 90s, did we not? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, that was a horrible Clinton. I don't know if I could do it. We'll move on. That's why we'll run out of time today. Too many impressions. But, um, you know, 
President Clinton would have done well to understand. Look, man, scripturally, we're talking anything that's outside of one man, one woman, and the covenant of marriage would be deemed sexual immorality. And as you look at Corinth and the culture that Paul was writing to, Corinth was a place saturated by sexual immorality. Corinth was a moral cesspool. It was hard to escape the tentacles of immorality in that city that this church was trying to make it in. The pagan temples that were there that were towards sexual goddesses. The temple prostitution that, it, that had thousands of temple prostitutes in its ranks. Romans, the book of Romans, was written from Corinth. And if you remember chapters 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Romans, it's just this list of all kinds of depraved actions and sexual acts. Uh, you've got Paul who's looking out his window from his desk in Corinth going, oh yeah, that, that too. That, that's horrible. Yeah. Uh, oh, and that over there. Oh, oh gosh. You know? And then he signed it, stamped it, and sent it to Rome uh, to, to show the depravity of man. That came from Corinth. The Roman world was X-rated at the time. It was full of all kinds of unbridled indulgences, calloused consciences, self-serving idolatry, and perverted sexuality. It takes a, st a strong stomach to read Romans chapter 1. In three different times in that chapter, Romans 1, Paul says, God gave them up. Looking at the Corinthians, or God gave them over to this or to that. In other words, God abandoned those who had abandoned them, even in their sexuality. Corinth was Paul's inspiration for his portrait of perversion. Corinth was a city that had forgotten how to blush. As one man said, the Corinthian church was a tiny boat afloat in a sea of immorality. And tragically, the gospel ship had sprung a leak. The city's e uh, evil had infiltrated the life of the church. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul tries to patch those leaks. So as we look at Corinth, that's where this church is at. But I would ask you, is America any better today? C.S. Lewis, the writer of Chronicles of Narnia, that's how we know him, right? He said, yeah, amen. The movies, anyways. Uh, said, try to imagine that you're transported to another world. And everywhere you look, there's pictures of beef, displays of ribs, pot roasts, steaks on billboards and buses, magazines and on TV. You'd come to the conclusion that this culture was obsessed with beef. Now transport that to, transpose that to our culture it's not steak that's on the billboards or on the sides of the buses, which we know nothing about here in Prineville. But we do realize that our culture is obsessed with sex. Take a drive through Portland or Eugene or even going down the main drag in, in Bend and you see strip clubs. You see pornography. And I believe one of the latest statistics that I've read are 60% of Christians regularly view pornography. Think of what that might mean for our church here in Prineville today. The Reuters Journal from Ontario, Canada said 87% of university students are being immoral over webcams, instant messages, or on the telephone. I'm trying to 
church it up a little bit. I know there's some younger minds here. It's a little difficult to do, you can imagine. And so you think that you alone are isolated. But we know from the scriptures that what we're living in, in America, is very similar to what the Corinthian church was living in some 2,000 years ago. Statistics show that more money is spent on pornography in America than country music, rock music, rap music, jazz music, classical opera, ballets, and plays all combined. It's the biggest religion with the greatest amount of dedicated followers. One man said, pornography is America's pastime. More money is spent than on professional basketball, baseball, and football, including the Super Bowl combined. Are we a culture that's obsessed with sex? This multi-billion dollars a year industry, 11,000 adult movies a year, which is 20 times the number of films that mainstream Hollywood puts out. Filter, filter, filter for the young minds here. (laughs) You can ask for my notes later, I suppose. You know, in thinking of where we're at as America and how even our, our simple, you know, cable package that we desire to get gets HBO and Cinemax thrown in, thrown in for months free at a time. Some of you perhaps even subscribe to these channels. Uh, Lindsay and I were watching a TV show recently that uh, was produced by Netflix. Thinking, oh, Netflix made a movie. Cool. It's about Washington. And just disgusted with the way that they portrayed things and probably is true but the way they put it on video, and finally we just said, man, we just can't watch this anymore. Other shows that I'm sure you are familiar with, I want to read to you from a CBS News special report where it says, last year Comcast, the nation's largest cable company, pulled in $50 million from adult programming. All the nation's top cable operators from Time Warner to Cablevision distribute sexually explicit material to their subscribers, but you won't read about it in their annual reports. Uh, same with satellite providers like Echo Star and DirecTV, which is owned by Hughes Technology, a subsidiary of General Motors. How much does DirecTV make off adult pro- uh, programming? Uh, quote, they don't break the number out. Even, uh, but I would guess they probably get a couple hundred million, maybe as much as $500 million off of adult entertainment in a broad sense, says Dennis McAlphine, a partner of McAlphine Associates, who has tracked the entertainment industry for over two decades. I would think it's probably more than what their overall profit is. The other areas are losing money, but this is making money. Then there's the big hotel chains like Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt, Sheraton, and Holiday Inn, which all offer adult films on in-room pay-per-view television systems, and they are purchased by a whopping 50% of their guests, accounting for nearly 70% of their in-room profits. One hotel owner said, we have to have it, our guests demand it. So that's, that's where we live, all right? That's where we go and stay while we're out of town. Um, The online streaming and these programs that we've had to shut off that are nothing more than soft core porn. And as we watch with some of our favorite actors, we're like, all right, they get into these situations that we've got to shut it off. We've got to shut it off. Late night television. We just want to encourage you. You're, You're kidding yourself. If you're trying to advance in holiness and in your love relationship with Christ, but you're allowing these things into your home and you're watching these things late night, even during the daytime these days. 
culture that's saturated with immorality. Even the music that we listen to, 2% of songs on top 10 selling CDs uh, contain sexual content, 41% of which were very explicit or pretty explicit, says Family News and Focus. We have Craigslist, great place to buy a dirt bike or some new tires, but there's also the casual encounters section on Craigslist. The number of uh, st- the statistics on adultery within the church are uh, staggering. Uh, one night stands. The National Council on Sexual Addiction compulsively estimates uh, compulsivity estimates that six to eight percent of Americans are sex addicts, which is sixteen to twenty-one point five million people in America. Filter, filter. <laughs> think you get the idea. We're a culture that is obsessed with sex. And outside of marriage, it is immorality. And Paul says it's actually reported among you, this church that I love. And actually the language says it's commonly reported among you, or it's everywhere noised abroad about you. In other words, it's the talk of the town about you, church, that there is sexual immorality among you. And Paul would say, let it not even be named among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Does your version have a dash there? <laughs> you can just, he's like pausing as he's writing it down, you know? It's, it's not even named among the Gentiles, dash, that a man does such things. Leon Morris says, this is speaking of an illicit union of a particularly unsavory kind that's been contracted among the church. A man shacking up with his stepmom. The language, it, it might be his stepmom, it might have been his actual mom. Dad may have been dead. Paul doesn't expound, but we know, however Paul explains it here, it's a sin. The church had been infested with incest, and it was commonly reported at the talk of the town. Now, Old Testament, we've read it recently in the church together. Uh, the, the Torah, that it would forbid such an illicit union. Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 27, Genesis 35 gives us an account of Reuben who lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And we read of how this is, this is forbidden. This is forbidden among God's people. But as Paul says here, even the Gentiles were disgusted with this. The pagans, well, Roman law forbid this type of a relationship. Cicero himself tells us that this account was absolutely abhorrent. Even in Corinth, where you could do anything, a line had been crossed. Lenski, commentator, says these things are naturally abhorrent. One doesn't need Christianity to repudiate them. In other words, you don't even need to be a Christian to work out what was going on in Corinth. wasn't right. And so we see here this, this horrible sin... But Paul gives a stern remedy towards it. The stern remedy that we'll get to is one of church discipline and and love with the heart to gain the brother we'll see. And already we know that the first thing I want you to note about this stern remedy is that it's loving to the watching world 
that the watching world might see Christ's transforming power. It's loving to the world to discipline sin that's going on within the church. All throughout the New Testament, we're told to flee pornea, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. We'll be looking at that next week, or uh, whenever we get to chapter 6, I'm thinking next week. Also in that same chapter, chapter 6, and hopefully you're on that page, you can just look over, chapter 6, verse 18, we're told to flee sexual immorality. That word flee is a strong, hard to pin down action. In the same way that Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife in in the book of Genesis, and she grabbed onto his robe, and it ripped off of him, and, and he had such a strong, hard to pin down action, that's how we should be fleeing from sexual immorality. In the same way a wrestler would try to get out from underneath the, the pin of the opponent. That's how we should run from pornea. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. I want you to flip over there. I'm going to be looking at a lot of different scripture. I realize you can't, you know, speed flip. Perhaps you can make it to Ephesians chapter 5. A few books over to the right. And let's look at verse 1 says, be imitators of God, dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And so in these first couple of verses, we've got love and an example of love found in Jesus Christ, and we're to imitate that love. And then there's the word but. But the opposite of that, fornication, it's that word pornea, And all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Let alone let it be the talk of the town that that it's happening within the church. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. And here we are, Ephesians 5 verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather give thanks. For you know, listen to this, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who's an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And so there's this strong exhortation to the Ephesians who lived in a city that had Diana as a goddess in their town. And there was a mountain in their town that had a, had a temple on it too, Uh, the Dianus or Artemis, the goddess of sexuality. And he says, don't let it be named among you, Ephesians. And you need to remember that no fornicator has any inheritance in the kingdom. Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians, don't be deceived. Fornicators and adulterers and idolaters, and he goes through a whole list, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's no inheritance for them. And don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. If anything that you're hearing today in 2013 Prineville is causing you to say in your heart, oh no, it's okay. This is okay. This is okay. And he said, it's okay. Those are called empty words and they're counter gospel. They're anti-Christ. Empty words of self-deception where we would find a way to make it okay with ourselves. We would try to, you know, Get around the junk drawer term. Well, what about this? This has got to be... No. 
The Lord knew our minds are so filthy and we are so wicked, we will try to even create things to be sinful. And so he says, anything that's not within the marriage bed with your wife or your husband, which he says in Hebrews, that's undefiled above all. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, the book of Hebrews says. We speak empty words to ourselves or you have them spoken to you such as bizarre theological reasoning where your boyfriend or your girlfriend might say, hey, in the Greek, that's not what it means. Or, which I've heard recently within close circles, oh, it's okay because we're married in God's eyes. We're married in our hearts. And so they go on to live together and fornicate together for years and have babies together. And finally, you know what? It's time to get married so that everybody else is okay with it. No, before the Lord... You're in fornication, you're in sexual immorality, and God will judge it. So repent from sin. Such empty words as we are adults, or they're just pictures, or we're practically married, or I'm the exception, they are all out of context. If you'll flip again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's over to the right, you're in Ephesians, uh, go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. All right, so you guys are automatically like, all right, I want to know the will of God. You know, am I to move here, go there, accept this job, or become a this or a that? Hey, here is God's will, that you be set apart from the world. That's what sanctification means, your sanctification this is God's will, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. God's will for your life is that you not look like the world in this area. In the, in the area of sexual purity, in the area of holiness, that you not be like the soap opera stars. And the TV stars and the things that we see that we would call Gentile, the, the co-workers. That their sexuality is based on passion of lust. It's not what it's based upon in the scriptures. They don't know God. And anyone that disagrees with this is defrauding their brother or their sister. And anyone that disagrees with this, you know what? You're not arguing with Rory. You're not arguing with focus on the family. You're not arguing with, you're arguing with God, it says there in verse 8. God that loved us so much that he's given us his Holy Spirit. Not so that we can have goosebumps on the back of our neck or something. He gave us the Holy Spirit to make us holy. That we might walk in righteousness. So I know we camped out a lot there in verse 1. But just to set the stage, what was going on in Corinth was sexual immorality. And such a, a horrible kind that even made the Gentiles and the pagans want to vom a little bit. And so in verse 2, we see that a bigger problem than even that immorality 
was that the Corinthian church was puffed up, verse 2 says. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in case you're wondering. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You know, the Corinthians were always puffed up, always inflated with pride. And we've seen that so far in the book. But this time they have the rod of correction brought to them because they are puffed up with pride that they are so open-armed and welcoming to sinners. They were kind of the 2,000-year-old church of Unitarians, okay? Or the Unitarian church, even today, that we embrace everybody. Come on in, no matter what the Bible would say is sin or those crazy. You just come in and you're welcomed here and you can just continue doing whatever you want because truth is just relative to whatever your situation is. We have no authority in our life that we would judge one another. So you come in and be comfortable and keep doing things as is. Look how we are so welcoming and look who we are that we're allowing this individual who is sleeping with his stepmom to fellowship here. No questions asked. And some think that as Christians, you can just do anything you want with anyone you want at any time you want. One of the greatest forms of Christian narcissism. People think that in Christianity that not saying anything is an act of love towards that individual. And that's a true expression of grace. That is the danger that Paul is combating here. As one man said, any church that doesn't confront sin, that it knows is within its ranks, totters on the brink of spiritual extinction. The Bible says it, and history confirms it. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets would tell the nation of Israel that everything is okay. What you're doing and your immorality and your worshiping of idols, it's all okay. And the prophets would say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They were not even ashamed. It says, the prophets and nor the people, did they know how to blush? So they will fall and they will be cast down. You know, I've been here for four years and this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've taught on church discipline, disciplining unrepentant sinners. And every time I teach on it, I receive some hostile feedback, angry meetings, storming out the door, leaving the church because I would preach such a thing. The reason why most churches don't exercise church discipline in 2013 seems to be more the opposite reason than the Corinthians. The Corinthians were puffed up, so they weren't going to discipline. We have a, a, a false humility in the church today where individuals would say, Oh, I can never call somebody out on their sin. Who am I to judge? That is not my place. Well, as you, hopefully, if you've been here two weeks, you know that the type of judgment that Jesus is talking about in his judge not statement, it's not, hey man, I noticed that you're sleeping with your mother-in-law. I just want to take you to the scriptures. Not okay. Judge not! Don't you know what your own Lord and Savior says? It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, damn not. Don't damn that person to hell. That's not your job. But in the very same passage, Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, he says, you go out there and you judge people to see if they're wolves in sheep's clothing. You judge conduct. 
and you lovingly confront that, as for condemning a person to hell, it's not your job. The Lord will take care of that on the great day of the Lord. The idea of I could never speak to anybody, lovingly come alongside them and even bear the burden with them to help them walk away from I could never do that. We don't do church discipline here. That is what's called false humility. Why is that false humility? Because you are exalting yourself against the word of God that is not in one place in scripture, all throughout scripture. Even the idea of a disciple has the root word dis-discipline. And we're not talking, it always is just excommunication. You get up here right now and get out of here. No, we're talking, man, is we're just reading the Bible together at our core groups and our 242 groups and, our, and we just were talking and someone shares, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, just like opening a porn store or something, you know. Judge not, judge not, judge not. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. No, man, let me just share with you. This, this, is, this is unholy. This isn't right. Oh, all right. And that's beautiful, man. When we're just sharing on the little things and what the word says and we're sharpening each other, it's not the pastor that does it. It's you guys with each other. We never would get to the big like, bro, will you repent, man? You're leaving your kids, for this other woman, what are you doing, man? You're leaving your beautiful wife who's been so faithful. No, I don't care. I'm just, no, you don't know. God's called me to do it, and I'm going to do it. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm sorry, but the word says, and we're going to get to what the word says sometime today. <laughs> After lunch, we might come back. A false humility would say, no, what I think, how I feel about this brother or this discipline process, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go against what the scripture says. You are exalting yourself and your feelings against the clear-cut call of God and his word to defend holiness, to love a brother, and to bring purity to the church. One of the last comments I've received after the church series was, where's the grace, man? Where's the grace? And if you would have been listening to the sermon's entirety, there was much grace preached, much love preached. In fact, it's grace and love that motivates us and compels us to confront the sinning, erring brother or sister. Who are you actually to tell God how to be gracious, how to be holy? John Piper says, tolerating sin is sinful. And Paul says, rather than being puffed up, look who we allow, and we're just gracious. He says, you should have been mourning. You should have been grieving. The language is the way that your best friend who was just killed and is dead, the way you would grieve over them or a family member or a loved one, that is how you should be over the sin that's happening in the church that's not even your own. The first thing that you should do when you hear that someone in this room is sin is not, well, I figured that would happen. <laughs> or it's not, tell me some more about this. I'm going to put it on Facebook. <laughs> or I'm going to go to the church prayer meeting and, oh, I just, I just feel like we need to pray for so-and-so because of this. You likey? Of course we likey. The Proverbs say we'll likey, but the Proverbs also say don't telly. 
the first thing we should do when we hear about it is hit our knees and cry and weep. Not only for the person and the people that are directly affected from this sin, but Jesus Christ's holy name is compromised. The church has had a, a cancer brought into it. And we need to weep and we need to cry for the individual, for the church, for the people, for God's name. And that he would help us to love this individual and bring him out. That we might mourn. That he who has done this deed, we see in verse 2, might be taken away from among you. We see what this taking away looks like in the verses to come. For verse 3, For I indeed as am absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present with him, he who has done this deed. Judge not, judge not. Guys, there's more judging passages in Scripture to look at, to understand how the Lord would have us judge. And here we have Paul, who's not even there, saying, in this epistle there is judgment upon this sin that is unrepentant, and you're proud about it. I'm judging it right now. Paul had decided to make a legal decision regarding this sin. It was to be condemned. Look at what the world sees when they look at your church, a church of Christ. Verse 4, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. I want you to underline here that there is, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, underline it, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ involved in the loving disciplinary processes in the church? You bet he is. It's done in his name and it's done in his power where an individual, such a one, verse 5, is delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Yeah, it serves you right. Be destroyed. No, read the rest. That his spirit may be saved. As we're gathered together, this is to be done. It's to be done with the church, in front of the church. Not to humiliate the brother, but to gain the brother. Jesus himself has an example of church discipline in Matthew 18. And I want you to flip there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so it's after Malachi. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, there are steps in church discipline. And like I was saying earlier, the discipling process is just like a light grain sandpaper. We're just always with each other. We're just loving each other and speaking the truth and love to each other. And we just become polished through that. If you're not in a discipleship group, get into a discipleship group so we can just sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. And in those groups, man, there's sin that takes place. And if there's sin that takes place, man, just between you and him or you and her, tell them that fault alone with them. Don't come to the pastor. Don't come to the church prayer meeting. Don't declare it on Facebook in a, in a vague sense that everybody happens to know what you're talking about. You go to that brother. Why? 
Because if he hears you, you've gained your brother. That is the point here. The purpose of the confrontation is not to get stuff off your chest or make someone look foolish or to prove your point, but to gain your brother, to restore the friendship and the fellowship that we have in Christ that was divided by sin. That's why you do it. Then there's another step in verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay, so if you've done that part, it's still not go to Pastor Rory time. It's still not go air it to the church time. It's not anything time, but one or two other people. You get together, you pray with each other, you make sure there's not a big timber in your eye before you go try to get the splinter out of their eye. And you go and you pray, not to mob up on them, and this will really intimidate them. No, the more people that are there, it's just so that every word is established. So I want you to understand, you're sinning in this way, and you're unrepentant in it, and this is your response. We still beg you to, to turn and to repent. I've got these two people that love you. We're on your side. We want you to repent. But this, we all get it, okay? I said this. You said this. Please repent. Not gonna. Okay, well, then Jesus says, if, if this person refuses to hear the two or three, then you tell it to the church. And at that point, the church just begs and pleads, will you repent? And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. An unsaved individual. By this point, by all appearances, the person loves the sin more than they love Jesus. And their character of unrepentance leads us to no longer having normal, casual fellowship with this individual. When we see them now, from this point on in the church discipline process, we warn them as brothers that they are acting like enemies. And until they repent, we cannot pretend to be in fellowship with them. Interactions at this point on should be characterized not by casualness, but by deliberate conversations about repentance from this sin. This aspect of church discipline, as um, Jonathan Lehman wrote, consists of the public statement that the church can no longer vouch for an individual's citizenship in heaven. We've been studying in the book of Hebrews. You are part of the household of faith if you continue. If you continue on in the Lord. But if you're in a place, I'm not continuing on in this. No way. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what I'm going to do. I say, forget you, Bible. I'm doing my thing. And we just say, man, that is not a life consistent with the biblical disciple of Jesus Christ. I cannot vouch that you're a citizen of heaven. And as Lehman writes, excommunication is a church's declaration that it can no longer uh, affirm that an individual is a Christian. Now, Jesus continues on and says this, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, keep in mind that these promises are usually applied to prayer in general, But the real context is church discipline. And many of you, right, we're always praying and you're like, oh, Jesus, there's two of us praying. So you're here now. Anybody get that? Now you're here. No, what's the context? 
No, when you guys are together and you are standing up for holiness and there's a disciplinarian process, I want you to know I'm there in this difficult time. It's a hard thing to do as a church, and we are a church that we discipline each other, and I'm disciplined. And by the grace of God, it'll never get to be, again, we've done it four times or something since I've been here, but an an excommunication. Because we're doing all these little disciplines, just challenging each other. Oh yeah, okay, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you. This excommunication process has the Lord's stamp of approval on it. He says, I am there in the midst of you when this is going on. And we just read in 1 Corinthians that when you are gathered together in my name and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Are you hearing Jesus there? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And in church discipline, when you're gathered together at this point, the Lord has his stamp on it. Verse 5 says, very strong, sobering language. Believe It's hard to teach this. It's hard to teach this because... Because our flesh says, don't do it. When the word says, do it. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I love one preacher's sermon title here. It was John Piper. The sermon title was, How Satan Saves a Soul. Isn't that interesting? That only our God in his infinite sovereignty, omniscience, he's the only one that could say, Hey, wicked enemy number one, the ace of spades on the deck of spiritual terrorist cards. I'm going to use you to save somebody, sucka. <laughs> God uses Satan to sanctify an individual. Our arch enemy is used to save and sanctify God's people. Only Jesus, right? Only Jesus can do that. Now, it may be that simply putting a person out of the covenant community is the same as handing him over to Satan. I don't personally think that that's it. Paul says at the end of verse 4, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I think he's showing us that something more is happening, something that's taking place, that it takes the power of Jesus to perform, that Paul did at least one other time in church history. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Hymenaeus and Alexander are people that he delivered over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. So what seems to be in view here is something like what happened in the book of Job, the only other place in the Bible outside of Paul's letters, where you read of someone being handed over to Satan, right? And the very words occur in Job chapter 2 verse 6 where the Lord says to the devil, Behold, I hand him, Job, over to you, only spare his life. Very similar to what we're reading in 1 Corinthians, right? Then the next verse in Job says, So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord and smote Job with boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the result of all this was God's gracious purpose. In Job chapter 42, 40 chapters later in verse 6, Job says, Now my eyes see you, O Lord, and I despise myself. Right? What's the purpose that Paul says? That he might be saved and his flesh would be destroyed. Well, Job says, I despise self, flesh, my way, and I repent in dust and ashes, Job says. For the good of the person, we love them enough at this point in the church discipline process to, by the power of the Lord Jesus, Give them over to Satan so that their flesh, what they want to do, 
We're not talking just, oh man, I just, we just give it over so that you will have your flesh melt off your skin and your bones. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about their will to do what they want to do to eat the apple when the Lord said, don't eat the apple. That their flesh would be destroyed. And sometimes in that, the diseases and the AIDS and the, the results from the drugs and all of that stuff, that happens. It destroys the flesh. But by our toleration, like the Corinthians were tolerating this sexually immoral individual, by toleration, we may actually usher a person into hell. But when we confront them, Paul says it, Jesus says it, we're ushering them to heaven. Tolerating it, letting it go on, winking at it, letting it go on, takes the person to hell. Confronting it and applying the gospel and the good news of redemption to it ushers them to heaven. We ask Jesus, who's in the midst of the discipline process, to commission Satan to destroy the sinner's flesh that in the end their spirit may be saved. Ananias and Sapphira are an example of this. In Acts chapter 5, their sin left them useless for ministry. And all hope of reward was lost. It was better that they would die then and there than arrive in, and arrive in heaven as a shipwrecked sailor. But they would arrive none the less. And if you wrestle with this, I just want you to know, Scripture is being read here. You're not arguing with Rory, you're arguing with the Word. And it just shows how much we've drunk the world's punch in regards to toleration and coexisting and not standing up for truth and having a passion for holiness and purity. It's the purpose of purity that God has saved us. The Bible proclaims and history proves that unbelievers have always been drawn more effectively among believers and into Christian communities where there's a radical difference among the people of God when it comes to life and money and sex, and our tongue, speaking forth pure words to individuals. When the world comes in here, and they see cussing going on in our midst, and they see people that it's just blatant immorality going on, and this and that, they go, you're no different than the rest of the people out there, the fraternities, and the sororities, and the clubs. What's different? But when they come in and see that we are serious about holiness, then they say, there's something different. There's something different about this Jesus character. Verse 6 again, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Sin in the Old Testament and the New is likened to leaven. Like a lump of dough that when leaven is put in it, it spreads and makes the whole lump sour. In the same way, sin in the church is like a cancer. It starts out small, just a kernel of sin in the heart of an individual. But when left unchecked and unrepented, it begins to spread until a whole church can be destroyed. And, destroyed. and that is what Paul was concerned about in 1 Corinthians. He wanted that cancer to be cut out, to be cleaned out. As a plague might enter a city by one garment, so the plague, the leaven of sin, can kill a whole church's effectiveness. 
Let's move on in verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So purge it out. And he uses that picture of Passover and how Jesus is our Passover lamb that was not slaughtered a billion times. He was slaughtered one time for everyone to be saved. In the same way, we're to purge out the leaven and be clean once and for all. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with the extortioners, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. So we're going to be in the world. And in Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says to the Father, I don't desire that you take them out of the world, but Lord, that you would keep them in the world and keep them from the evil one. The Lord desires us to be witnesses and lights in this dark world. No, he doesn't want us to be removed from the people. He wants us to be witnesses to them. It's within the church in the company of brothers where an individual says, I am a Christian. I call myself a brother. But I'm going to continue on in this sin saying no to God's holiness. Then we're told in this chapter and many others in scripture that we are not to keep company with that individual. We're not to associate with them or befriend them. Somebody who is a so-called Christian. And then he goes on and lists a sin that goes way beyond sexual sins. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 tells us to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that he'd received from us. In the same chapter, he says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. But then listen to this. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The, the whole time, your desire is to gain that brother. Your whole desire is to lovingly confront the sin and apply the gospel to it. If they're going to resist, man, you still love them, but every conversation you have is about their repentance. And we cannot hang out and act like everything's okay when you're in rebellion against God. We can't just keep hanging out so that you might have the best of both worlds. Go on sinning and hang out as everything's okay and, and goes on the same way. Proverbs tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. We speak the truth into each other's lives, and it might wound, but they're faithful. Titus tells us in chapter 3 that we're to avoid arguing with each other, if I can paraphrase very quickly. And he goes on to say, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So if you come to this church and you're going to divide the church, you're going to murmur and complain against the leadership or against the people, you're going to cause factions that we've read in 1 Corinthians are, are carnal and sin, then you're going to be confronted on it lovingly. Hey, I don't know if you know, 1 Corinthians talks about this. And man, we just want to watch out against divisiveness. We want to have the unity of the Holy Spirit here on the things that are essential. And then you keep being divisive. We're going to call you out on it again. But if you're going to keep being divisive, man, we're going to do what we're told to do. You're going to be rejected after that first and second admonition. 
And Paul would do that. In Galatians, it says he stood up to Peter to his face in front of people because he was being a hypocrite. And he was causing everybody around him, even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to be a hypocrite. Paul stood him to his face and said he was to be blamed. Peter would go on later on and, and do that in the book of Acts to Ananias and Sapphira. James tells us that if anyone would turn a sinner from the error of their way, they would save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Lehman, if I could quote him again, says that a thinned out gospel that speaks only of forgiveness and unconditional love does not have the resources for addressing a surface level tension. As a result, sin goes unaddressed and churches begin to shadow the world. However, a more robust gospel addresses not only the guilt problem of sin, it addresses the corruption problem of sin with the promise of a new nature. It also places the gospel within the larger biblical storyline of God's purposes for humankind to represent him. A gospel that's just robust would say, yes, there's sin and it's real, but we get to confess that sin and repent of that sin and move on. And when we see it coming in, we, what is that doing here again? Sweep it out of here. In my life, in your life, in our lives, that's what we do. Martin Luther said the Christian life is a continual cycle of confess, repent, sin, confess, repent, sin, confess, repent. Not the same sin over and over again, but we are in the process of sanctification and being exposed and seeing it, acknowledging it, calling it wickedness and being healed and cleansed from it. Charles Spurgeon says, salvation in sin is not possible. It always must be salvation from sin. We might as well speak of liberty while yet the irons are upon a man's wrists. Or boast of healing while the disease waxes worse and worse. Or glory and victory when the army's on the point of surrendering. As to dream of salvation in Christ while the sinner continues to give full swing to his evil passions, grace and holiness are inseparable as light and heat in the sun. True faith in Jesus in every case leads to an abhorrence of every false way and to a perseverance in the paths of holiness even unto the end. And that is what we're about at Calvary Chapel. Perseverance in our sanctification process. We want to be holy as he is holy. And as we see sin in our lives, we address it, we confess it, we repent of it, and we move on. Verse 12. For what do I have to do? Are you back there? I know we're, we're jumping around a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, and we'll be wrapping up. In fact, we can have the worship team come on up. That always spurs me on to be a little quicker. <laughs> verse 12 says, For what do I have to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are in, on the inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. There was a judgment that was taking place here in the church in Corinth. And as you look over at the next book, 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses what ended up happening. And if you'll flip over there, we'll close today looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5. says, if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Verse 6, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. 
So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So the idea here in 2 Corinthians is that the Corinthians obeyed Paul. They had exercised church discipline on this individual. That discipline was sufficient, you see in verse 6. It did a good work in this individual's life. And now it's time to forgive this guy and comfort this guy, lest perhaps too much shame and too much sorrow. I mean, he's just like, man, I'm in the Bible now forever. Like, I'm that guy who did that heinous sin that even the pagans were like, yeah, that's you, buddy. No, man, now it's come around him and rejoice that he's repented. Don't let him be overcome with too much sorrow. So the goal there was confession of sin and repentance and deep sorrow through the loss of fellowship. Verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. That's the heart to gain the brother that Jesus talked about. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. We're not going to do that, church discipline. I'm not going to confront them. No, we're too humble or we're too puffed up. Paul was testing them. And we are tested as well as a church. We're told not to eat with the individual. I remember in one case, it was right before Thanksgiving. And this individual wouldn't repent who'd invited a lot of people over to Thanksgiving. And it was just like, man, talk about a hard situation. This man won't repent from his sin. It's horrible sin. And we're told not to eat with it. Well, we are going to the house for Thanksgiving dinner, and we are eating with this individual. Okay, well, just here's what the scripture says. And Paul was putting them to the test, just like Crook County gets put to the test as well, whether we are obedient in all things. Not easy things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I've forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should have taken advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians 7, because this issue is addressed more. We see the outcome of what happened in this church discipline process. Paul says about the, the whole letter of spanking and the rod of correction that he used. Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. 2 Corinthians 7, 8. Though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So the man was disciplined and he was brought to repentance and fellowship was being restored just as Christ intends it. The Corinthians who were puffed up, they were also disciplined and they sorrowed as Paul had written to them that they needed to mourn. And what did that sorrow bring? It brought a clearing of themselves. It brought a diligence. It brought a zeal, a fear of the Lord. They were set on fire for the things of the Lord because of the discipline process. And that is what the scriptures tell us. Hebrews chapter 12, we're not going to go there, don't worry. But many times in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, if the Lord loves you, he's going to discipline you. Just like a father who loves his son will discipline his son. And that son 
is to think, I have so much joy that my dad loves me enough to not let me continue on to be an absolute pagan, disrespectful, do what I want to do, selfish little lad. But he loves me enough to correct me. It's the same within the church all throughout the New Testament. And so this morning, as we come to the table, the communion table, we want to come with hearts of repentance of sin. Even today, perhaps this teaching was a bit of a, a rod of correction to you. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that the context is a, a horrible sin of sexual immorality. And we look at our culture and we look at our compromise, even within the church. And a stern remedy for that, that we would repent and discipline those who don't. When we come to the table and we remember Jesus' broken body and his blood that was shed for us, we dare not come in rebellion against the Lord. We dare not come continuing on in immorality. But before you come to the table this morning, I beg of you to acknowledge your failure and your sin before the Lord in this area this morning. To confess it to him, and to repent of it. And to receive forgiveness. Come to the table and thank the Lord for his body that was broken and blood that was shed so that you could be forgiven of your compromise and you could have that compromise washed away and remembered no more. We also want to come in humility, not a false humility, and say, Lord, you're a God who disciplines his children. And so, Lord, we want to get on board with that. It's in your word. And so we humble ourselves as, as we take you into us. That's what communion is, not actually eating Jesus, all right? But it's, Lord, everything that you are, that you've done, it's in me. I'm receiving that. I want that. As close as you can be in me, it's in me now, Lord. I say amen to what you've done. I proclaim what you've done and I'm on board with all that you are. Come to the communion table today. We're going to close in a song. And you can just take a moment as the song is playing and just, Lord, I see this and I see this and it needs to go. I'm giving it up to you. And you come and you take the cup and the bread and you just... Receive forgiveness and thank the Lord for forgiveness that's been made available through the cross. And if Tammy and Scott, if you guys just want to begin to strum as we go to the communion table, let's just put our things aside and just prepare to worship the Lord. <clears throat> Maybe you would just respond to the word of God this morning. Just recognizing you've fallen short in this area. And I want to just have anyone here today that just recognizes a shortfalling. I just want to have you stand today as we begin to sing. And it doesn't mean you're a total pervert or anything like that. But as you would stand, you would just be acknowledging, Lord, you are a holy God. And there are things in my life that are unholy. There are things that I've just been allowing into my home 
things that I've been allowing just to, to be viewed, Lord. I haven't been standing up for purity in my kids' lives. I've been giving them empty words and I've been getting all of my advice on their dating relationships or how they view the internet from <clears throat> Dr. Phil or Oprah or something. And Lord, you've got a different agenda and a different plan, Lord. Maybe you've just got things at home that need to be burned. You've got things that need to be destroyed. You've got an internet that needs to have a filter on it, a covenantized program. You, need a, you have a phone that needs to be crushed or there needs to be accountability on it. Whatever it might be, you, you're living with someone and you need to move out. You're dating someone, you need to break up. <clears throat> and you would just say, Lord, I, I look into the mirror of your word this morning and I see blemishes on my face. And Lord, I just, I want to stand today and say, I see it, Lord. And I just stand in response and say, God, cleanse me. I'm purposing in my heart right now to cut those things off and deal with those things after church today. I hear you, God. And just before you would come to the communion table today, you would just stand between you and the Lord. <clears throat> no one knows what you're standing for. That's between you and the Lord. You would just say, Lord, I see the blemishes. I see the compromise. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.